Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So look what he's going to do. He's going to go to his Old Testament again, and he's going to read a text that he says is living, is the living word of God. It's now speaking. It's appropriate for the New Testament people of God, and he's going to preach a little sermonette on it through verse 11. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now remember that in chapter 12, the preacher has begun to apply the truth of chapter 10, verse 36, which stated that his hearers had need of endurance. Why? Because it's only those who endure who save their souls, chapter 10, verse 39. So here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he repeats the exhortation to endure. And he uses the marathon as a picture of the Christian life. The life of faith is a long distance race. And it requires exertion, regulation, progression, yes, endurance. But this race, thank God, is not run alone. There is, waiting at the finish line, a great crowd of runners who have already successfully completed the race. And their presence in our mind's eye testifies that even through trials, we triumph by faith. Remembering them motivates us to endure. They are proof that God's promises are true. He then gives three reasons to run with endurance, or three means, excuse me. Remember these? You have to lay aside weights. These are lawful things that hinder the race of faith. Secondly, we have to lay aside sins. These are things that try to wrap themselves around our feet, trip us up, and stop us from running. 
But the third means or method that we endure, and the main one really, is looking to Jesus. And we look to him, the text says, in three ways. As the originator of our faith, the completer or perfecter of our faith, and as our supreme example. Jesus Christ is the great reason we will complete our race. Faith comes to us from him. It's sustained by him. And it's perfected by him. So when we run in imitation of Jesus Christ, we can expect to cross the finish line just like he did. Now we come to the next section, which gives two more helps for endurance running. The subject is still perseverance in the faith. And these two helps are actually two ways of thinking about our race. Two ways of thinking about our race. In other words, the helps are items of faith. God reveals in these verses two truths that if we will believe them, they will aid us in our long-distance spiritual running. What's the problem that every marathoner experiences? Well, it's weariness, isn't it? <laughs> Runners get tired. Their mind and their body are drained and they want to quit. I ran cross-country in high school. And the one thing I can remember my coach saying more than anything else was, running is 90% mental. It's all up here, Miller. It's all up here. Well, the longer I, at first I thought he was insane. But after four years under him, I came to understand that he was absolutely right. That so much of this is the way I was thinking about the race, how I was feeling, and a host of other things. It was in my thoughts that so much played a role in how well I ran or how far I ran. So it is with spiritual running. And so in verse 3, the preacher is concerned, you can see it there, that his hearers, he doesn't want them to grow weary or become faint-hearted. And again in verse 5, the exhortation is to not grow weary under the discipline of the Lord. Now, both of these ways of thinking that I'm going to talk about for the rest of our time together are directed to combat weariness. These are two truths, two ways of thinking that you need to know for your running this spiritual race so that you don't quit, so that you don't get so tired that you listen to yourself, convince yourself to stop. Because remember, if you stop, you don't cross the finish line. You don't cross the finish line, you don't get the reward. You have to endure in order to be saved. So let's look at these two mental helps to endure. And the first is the truth that our struggle is comparatively light. This is found in verses 3 and 4. Let me read them again. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Our struggle is comparatively light. I didn't say it's light. It doesn't always feel light. In fact, it often feels quite arduous. But it is comparatively light, according to these verses. We're actually asked to make a comparison. That first word, consider him, doesn't just mean think about Jesus. It actually means to think about him by comparing yourself to him. Now, that strikes some of us as like, oh, I don't want to do that. (laughs) That seems sacrilegious. We're commanded here to think about ourselves and think about him and compare ourselves to him in this respect. In this respect. How did he run his race? What was his race like? Was it light or was it heavy? We'll note several things. What we're really comparing here is Jesus' endurance with ours. Consider him who endured. Right? So this is Jesus running his race of faith. That's what we're comparing ourselves to him regarding. His life is characterized not as an easy, friendly one. It's described by words like hostility, struggle, resistance in these verses. So clearly, we shouldn't expect anything different in our race, right? Secondly, the source of Christ's hostilities is sinners. It was sinners. And this teaches us a balancing truth. Last week, our two hindrances were internal to ourselves, right? They were weights and they were sins. But it's possible to be troubled and our race made difficult by things outside of ourselves. The devil, the world, evil men and women can make our life hard, can make the life of faith wearisome. That's what Jesus experienced. The hostilities of sinners. So we should expect that too. Notice the danger. The danger for us is that we would grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, some of you, you live your Christian life and then something very difficult comes along and you feel like giving up. And part of your problem is that you were surprised. You have no right (laughs) to be surprised. Where, anywhere in the New Testament is Jesus' life or your or my spiritual life, this race, where is it painted as flowery beds of ease, coasting downhill the whole way, half asleep, because nowhere is it like that. We're warned over and over again, it's hard. You have to exert yourself. There are enemies, on and on the list goes. So, So don't be surprised, don't be shocked. Don't think, oh, well, I must not be a real Christian then. I mean, if if life's this hard and I can't do this and the struggle's this tough, well, then I can't. I must not be real and give up. No, don't grow weary. Don't give up. Don't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. Learn this truth. You see, if you get tired and fearful and weak 
as probably any marathoner does, you'll be tempted to doubt your Savior and your salvation. And you'll even entertain the idea that, you know, running is just not worth it. It's too hard. But this is the only way of salvation. This is the path Jesus walked or ran. You must walk or run it too. This is the established pattern from God. Notice, and and here's where the comparison becomes, uh, there's a difference. The extent of his endurance. We compare ourselves with Jesus, and if we look at the extent of his endurance, what does it say? It says, well, he resisted to the point of shedding his blood. Jesus is running killed him. He ran himself to death. According to chapter 10, those being written to in this book had, quote, endured a hard struggle with sufferings. They had had public reproach. Some of them were imprisoned. They lost their property. They all experienced something much harder than probably any of us have in our long distance run but they had not persevered unto death. (laughs) You see, what's happening here? The preacher is saying that there are some things worth dying for. There, There may not be very many in life, but you're not really living unless you have something to die for. And Christ and your own salvation and the glory of God, that's worth dying for. So he's not saying we haven't died yet. And, and they, they don't respond by thinking, oh, well, yeah, I, I didn't sign up for that. That's not what I wanted. Um, that's a disincentive. No, this is an incentive. This is so valuable. Eternal life is so great and good that you ought to be willing to freely die for it. Jesus did. The Hebrews hadn't yet. You and I haven't yet. But if we would be willing then what we're suffering, those hindrances, our remaining sin, people outside of us who make it difficult for us, it's comparatively light. It's comparatively light. This is where the difference is in our comparison with Jesus. He shed his blood. We have not. And even if we do, we won't have the kind of suffering that Jesus suffered. He was under the wrath of God. He was in hell on the cross. That's what he was experiencing. No Christian will ever experience a drop of God's wrath or a moment of hell. So even if we shed our blood, it won't be, well, it will be comparatively light if we look to ourselves and to Jesus. Enduring for Christ is worth it. It was worth it for him to shed his blood. He despised the shame and he's enthroned in heaven now. And the promise is the same for us. By God's grace, we too can become conquerors and receive a crown of life. So if you're worried, if you are weary, excuse me, what's your response to all this? Is it self-pity? 
Is it telling everyone you know just how difficult your spiritual journey has been? How great are your sufferings? Now, some of you have known great spiritual sufferings, and I'm not making fun of those. But if you will compare yourself to Christ, as you are commanded to do here, you will realize that what you're going through is comparatively light. And this will help you not quit, not get tired, not give up. And by God's grace, you will reach Christ himself. Now we come to the second help. A second way of thinking about the difficulties of running. That if we will believe and live according to it, will help us to endure. And that's the second point. Our struggle is discipline from a loving father. When you think about the challenges of your race of faith, remember that they are comparatively light. And secondly, they are all discipline, training from the hand of your heavenly father. So again, the preacher goes to this Old Testament passage and expounds it. It's from Proverbs 3 that he quotes. And the preacher assumes that the text is appropriate and addressing his hearers. In other words, we're told again, really, that the word of God is alive and it speaks today to everyone who has ears to hear. In other words, brothers and sisters, read the Old Testament. Study the Proverbs. It is God's living voice to you today. And the part that he quotes in these two verses are fitting for you and me in this day. Let me read them. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's important to recognize that the difficulties in our spiritual race don't ultimately come from ourselves or from hostile sinners. They are ultimately training methods from our loving Heavenly Father. While the enemies of our souls mean for these very things to work evil against us, God means for these very same things to work for our good. You know, sinners want us to grow faint and quit the race. But God is at work in the very same time, the very same place, in the very same things in order to train us for discipline, it says in verse 7, so that we will continue the race to the end. Now let me make four supports or points for this main point. It's listed in your bulletin if you want to follow along. First, discipline is a sign of sonship. Discipline is a sign of sonship. You know, in Roman times, it was very common for a man to have legitimate children and illegitimate children. The illegitimate child or children would just be let go. They could do anything they wanted, they could go where they wanted, and they weren't pursued by their father really at all. He didn't pay any attention to them. What freedom! No, not really. Not really. 
they didn't get any training. The sons, on the other hand, the legitimate sons, were put into a training regimen so rough, you and I might compare it to slavery. The true son had to endure harsh training conditions. So anyone looking from the outside would find it very easy to say, oh, those are the true son, those are his true sons, and those are his illegitimate sons. The illegitimate children, he didn't care about because he didn't train them in any way. He put his real sons under rigorous training. Words like subjection, oversight, discipline were used in that era in regard to legitimate sons. The purpose was what? It was to get them ready to receive the inheritance. The illegitimate ones, they weren't getting the inheritance. The others had to be trained so they could get there. The same is true for the sons of God. Now there are many people who claim the name Christian today, who claim to be children or sons of God. And if you look at their lives, they live in utter disobedience to Him all the time. <laughs> and God does not appear to pursue them with reproof or chastisement or discipline. They don't have a troubled conscience when they sing, uh, sin. The Holy Spirit sent by the Father doesn't seem to bring conviction. And they happily go along living like their true father, the devil. They are undisciplined by God and so they demonstrate that they are not legitimate children but illegitimate children. But true believers, real sons of God, they experience discipline. They feel the weights. Sins are burdensome. They sense their need to look to Jesus. They have to wrestle in their minds about whether or not this is a comparatively light race or not. God rebukes his sons from his word. And they feel the sting. Yes, they do. He spanks them with providences and consequences to their sins. That's love of a father. God doesn't leave them alone. He pursues them with training. Why? Because he loves them. They are dear sons. Discipline is a sign of sonship. Secondly, discipline is an opportunity to show respect. Verse 9. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? So, Christian, when this discipline comes, how do you react? Is it your ordinary, almost invariable response to complain and over time become embittered? Is it to be angry with God and blame Him? Is it to hold a large-scale pity party and tell all your friends about it? Or is it to act like a son and show respect 
to your wise and good father. The question you must ask yourself is, are you rebelling or submitting to God when he disciplines you? Now, anything that causes us to know our dependence on our Heavenly Father and be called to submit to Him, that's good for us. Why? Because that's reality. You're not independent from God. You can't live one breath of physical or spiritual life without God. And so for you to know that and feel that, that's good. That's why discipline and training are good. They help keep in your mind what you would easily often forget and just coast along life and forget about the battle, forget about the race. We respect our parents when they do this well. How much more should we respect our Heavenly Father? See, all of these are ways of thinking about this race, that if we get it right, we'll know how to respond biblically and healthily for our own spirits. Thirdly, discipline is for our good. Discipline is not only a test of submission and respect. It is that. It's actually for our good. Now, loving human fathers attempt to discipline their children. And when they do, they have limitations, both of knowledge and time. They, they can only do it for a certain period of time. And they do it with a limited, fallible, perhaps very mistaken understanding of the situation. I mean, every parent has had the occasion where a few days later they realize that the, one, the child they disciplined was actually the innocent one and the other one was the guilty one. Now, they didn't do that on purpose, the parent, but it happens, right? That's what happens in human discipline. But our perfect Heavenly Father disciplines us, according to the text, for our good. No exceptions. No buts, no ifs, no... It's just for our good, all the time, every time. He is never mistaken about what we need. He is never mistaken about how to work it in us. He's never too sharp in his reproof. He's never too gentle. He is effective. His efforts are wise and kind, and they are perfectly ordered, again, for our good. His purpose is never to do us harm, and he never does ultimately harm us by our training. And he can do it for as short or long as we need it, for as long as that needs to be worked in us. Now, most of us are convinced when these things happen to us that this is enough, thank you, can you please uh, pull the training back? But you don't know better than your wise Heavenly Father. And so, submit, be thankful, endure. Verse 11 begins by telling us that discipline can be painful. And some of you know that right now, don't you? I mean, some of you are under as sharp a training regimen as you have ever been in your Christian life right now. 
So you go, wow, that's one scripture I, I absolutely believe. Uh, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about this. That's right. But when your flesh wants you to rebel against it, believe this verse. It's for your good. But it doesn't. It's for your good. But I wish it were. It's for your good. And what is the main good that discipline works? Well, that's the final point. Discipline results in peaceful righteousness. Verse 11. In other words, holiness is the main result. And this is necessary because remember back in chapter 10, verse 36, that our endurance must be in what? It must be in doing the will of God. It must be in obedience. It must be in holiness. It must be in practical righteousness. The road on which we run our spiritual marathon is the path named holiness. Any other path, if you take any other path, than a life a, other than the life of holiness, it will lead you to eternal death. To find life, peaceful righteousness must be lived out. Now, it's not going to be perfect this side of heaven, but it ought to be real and observable, just as the discipline is. And this won't be the kind of false holiness that some illegitimate sons display. That kind of righteousness that's so exclusive that they're the only ones right in the world and they can't seem to live at peace with anyone. You know, the kind of arrogant so-called righteousness that leads to fights and disaffection and separation. No, that's, that's not... Biblical righteousness. Certainly not the righteousness that's in view here. The righteousness that's in view here leads to peace. It's peaceful. You have peace with God and you have peace with men. Your brothers and sisters, great peace and joy with those outside the faith as much as it can be. You still live at peace with them. God's discipline in his children trains them to be at peace in righteousness. Now, much more needs to be said about this phrase, but um, as is so often the case, what the preacher has done here uh, for like the 50th time is he's given a little, uh, he's given a little word or set of words, a phrase that in another few verses, he's going to come back and talk more about. Right? So for the rest of this middle portion of the chapter, he's going to focus on that. So we'll, we'll be... Uh, We'll wait till, till the next sermon or then to, to address it, uh, especially from verse 14. So here's our one use to close. In the life of faith, these verses serve as a call to further faith. Here are two more things you need to believe. When the word of God came to you and announced your sin and the beautiful Savior... By the grace of God, you believed. But then you don't stop believing. You keep on believing. There are more things God wants you to know. There are more things you need to know. Well, here are two of the very many 
One is that your race, as difficult as it can be at times, is comparatively light. Keep looking to Jesus. And the second thing is that all of it that comes, even when it comes from evil men or wells up from the wickedness within you, it's still ultimately being overseen by God for your good. Remember that everything that happens to you ultimately comes from his kind, fatherly hand. And it's not meant to destroy you. And it will not. It's for your good. We need to believe these things. We need to trust his word when it tells us to count the race as comparatively light. And that discipline from the Heavenly Father is productive. It's not pointless. I know it sometimes feels that way. And sometimes we look at ourselves and we say, I don't think I learned anything in this. I, I just feel worse up. It's productive. God's word promises that. It does result in this. So our faith needs to function not just that there is a Jesus, but it also needs to accept what he says about our running the life of faith. Saving faith believes everything God says in his word. So frankly, if you don't believe these things, if you just utterly reject these things, if, they don't have, if you don't have these things in your mind while you're racing, you're going to quit running. And that would be spiritually disastrous because you must cross the finish line to receive the reward. I mean, if you really don't believe that the glories of heaven vastly overvalue the cost of running, why will you keep running? If you don't really believe that the reward is for an everlasting number of days, why will you put up with this training for a few decades? Why would you do it? Well, you, you wouldn't. You must believe these things. If you don't really believe that everything God brings into your life, including the struggles, is being worked for your good, how will you not become bitter and faint? How will you keep running? You see, how we think, not only about Christ, but about the Christian life, it's important. <laughs> what God tells us about it is true, and it's the only right interpretation. I am telling you, on the basis of the word of God that you need to say these truths to yourself until you believe them. You need to ask God for faith to believe these two things. I'm not pulling a Joel Osteen up here on you. I'm not telling you something that's not true, but if you'll repeat it enough times, you'll convince yourself of it and you'll have your best life now. No, I'm telling you, believe the word of God so that when your best life that's coming, <laughs> you'll actually get there because you'll survive this race. You won't faint. You won't grow weary. I'm telling you the truth. Don't listen to liars from pulpits. They will damn your soul. Do not listen to them. Hear the word of God when it speaks. And remember, not only might you endure, but you will endure. You will endure. Because Jesus 
is the originator and perfecter of all of your faith. Not just your initial saving faith. All of your faith. This is a call for you to live out what you actually are in Jesus Christ. Again, I'm not asking you to pretend something that's not true. I'm telling you to live out what Jesus Christ has already lived and died for. What's secured for you. In him you have every grace you need to cross the finish line. In him you have every grace you need to lay aside hindrances and sins. You can imitate Christ in the race of faith because he powers your spiritual running. So brothers and sisters, let us combat weariness with faith. Let's endure to the end so that together we can rejoice at the great reward of Christ. Let's pray.